1: Hey, folks, I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast, Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, Those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the team house and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page and you can actually support the stream as well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes.
2: Yeah, if if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it.
1: (laughs) Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House, with your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey folks, welcome to The Team House. This is episode 185. I'm Jack Murphy with David Park, D back there producing. And we have a guest on the show, Ken DeCleva, who is a psychologist who worked for the United States government, uh, Worked with the intelligence community, worked for the Department of State, uh, analyzed foreign leaders, um, and maintained, you know, helped maintain the mental health of U.S. government employees in high stress situations, such as uh, working out of the Moscow embassy. So, Ken, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
0: Uh, thank you for having me, uh, Jack and Dave. It's a pleasure to be on your show. I, I love your show, and I'm real honored because a lot of my close friends uh, have been on the show, such as. Shawnee Delaney, uh, Jim Lawler, Jim Hawes, uh, J.R. Seeger, and Doug Wise. So <laughs> I'm honored to be in such good company.
2: We're honored to have you. Um, yeah, it's uh,
1: we're going to get into some head games tonight. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So Kent, um, this is a you, you know you're a unique person and had a unique position and and speak from a unique perspective. Could you tell us a little bit about sort of your upbringing and what brought you into this interesting nexus of psychology and national security?
0: Uh sure, sure. Actually, I'm a psychiatrist, right. uh not a psychologist, but it it there's a lot of overlap and I'll talk about that. I I was uh I'm the child of immigrants from the former Yugoslavia uh who so my childhood was really steeped in the history of World War II and and post World War II uh communist Eastern Europe. My my parents were both refugees uh, fleeing communism who had grown up during World War II as the children of war. And I had relatives on both sides of my family who fought, like many wars, they divided families. So there were, I have one relative who is a priest and a major in Tito's partisan army in montenegro during world war ii he was known as the red priest because he he wore his uniform of the yugoslav national army the communist uniform but he also wore a cassock and and then i had another relative on my mother's side who was uh, german i'm part german and part Slovene and part serb and that relative was drafted into the wehrmacht in world war ii and Uh, was captured in the Battle of Stalingrad, one of the 92,000 German soldiers that surrendered in that epic battle of 1943. And then he spent, I think the next five or six years in in a prisoner of war labor camp in Siberia, lost both his legs due to frostbite, and then was freed and returned to Germany, where he became a businessman after the war. So I grew up steeped in history and foreign languages. My first foreign languages were Slovene, and then in college I studied Serbo-Croatian. And I majored in history in college, so I was always interested in in history, international relations. It was, frankly, part of a dinner table conversation in our home. So that's how I got into that part of it. The medical part was was my desire to go to medical school after a couple of years after uh, finishing university and while i was in medical school i i i sort of wondered about uh, having an international career but such things were very rare back then so i sort of forgot about it for a while but when i was a psychiatry resident in dallas at parkland hospital and ut southwestern medical center in in the 90s we would have these luncheons uh i think once a month for the residents where you'd have outside speakers from different hospitals or organizations come and tell you about where you might want to work when you graduated. And one day we had a psychiatrist from the CIA. She was obviously open and declared, and she, she sort of told us a little bit about it. But the bottom line is she told, she told very little. So most people had no real sense of what a medical officer working for the U.S. government overseas would do. I also called up uh, the State Department. This is pre-cell phone, pre-Google. And I called I called the switchboard and asked for the mental health division. I didn't even know it existed. And I got the phone number of the director at the time, uh, who <laughs> later became a mentor and friend, one of the legendary psychiatrists in the State Department, Dr. Esther Roberts. And she told me about the job, but she said, you're a resident, you're, it, you're too young, you need several years of experience post residency so wait and see so I forgot about it for a while but she became a friend and a mentor later when I joined so I was really blessed to be able to fuse those two experiences uh in my early early to mid 40s and and obtain a position with the US Department of State as a regional medical officer psychiatrist and diplomat and my first posting I was assigned to a brand new posting in at the US Embassy in Moscow. At the time they had about, oh, maybe ten psychiatrists overseas covering 250 embassies and consulates. So it was a much smaller program. And when I was told you're going to Moscow, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And I I had an exit interview with the then medical director uh who who was a very influential person in in the State Department's uh, office of Met- Medical Services, a wonderful man named Dr. Cedric Dumont, who had grown up in Africa and then served with the Peace Corps, had a background in infectious disease and tropical medicine. His father was an ambassador. And so he understood the corporate culture, if you will. And uh, he he called me into his office and he said, you're going to a very important position in Moscow. It's a brand brand new position in the region. The former USSR was my region so about 18 or 19 different embassies. Many of them had just been stood up in the previous five or six years. Uh, he told me, we expect you to do well, and and uh, excuse my French, but he told me, don't fuck up. Right. <laughs> and yeah. off I went.
2: Kent, out of, out of curiosity, did you know you wanted to go into psychiatry when you went to medical school?
0: Yes, I had an early interest in psychiatry, but uh, – I many, many uh medical students come to medical school with different interests, but you really solidify your interests during your during your clinical years, which in my case were the latter two years of a four year medical school education. Mm-hmm. And that's when you spend a couple of months on each different specialty, medicine, pediatric, surgery, psychiatry. And and I was drawn to really three psychiatry, surgery, and and internal medicine. And so it was a tough choice, but in the end, I ended up doing psychiatry, and I don't regret it. I've, I've had a wonderful time. I still practice as a full-time psychiatrist. I enjoy the complexity of the work. If I had to do it again, I'd probably do what they call a double major, where I, where I do a combined residency in internal medicine and psychiatry. I like neurology a lot, too. So I, I'm really fortunate to have those experiences, and great teachers, a great teaching hospital and lots of very sick patients, that's how you learn. The motto in our hospital, times have changed, but the motto back then is one that folks with your background in the special forces, I think will resonate with, which was um, see one, do one, teach one.
1: Yeah, yeah. What uh, What year was it that you landed in Moscow?
0: I I started in Moscow in 2002, mm-hmm. in July of 2002, which was a challenging time. Because the previous year uh, after the Robert Hansen um, espionage uh, case, the arrest of Robert Hansen of the FBI, who is one of the worst spies in American history, there were a lot of uh, PNGs, diplomats on both sides getting kicked out. We kicked out, I think 51 Russians and they kicked out 51 Americans. So about a quarter a fifth of the embassy's workforce had been cleaned out. So it was a stressful time. Yeah, And and President Putin had just come to power in 2000, so there were a lot of changes happening in Russia during that time. It's a very, very exciting and difficult place to work. I I will share with your listeners, I, I was part of the country team there, which is led by the ambassador, it meets once a week in any embassy and it was a large country team probably people from 40 50 different offices and agencies and but it being in moscow was like playing for the yankees everyone had to had to bat 300 there there was no room for lightweights or people that weren't 100% committed to doing the mission and doing their job
2: now with with your focus in psychiatry when you're going into moscow or or things that you did prior to that or whatever did you did you focus on like what we would consider like profiling the bad guys? Were you more concerned with treating you know people under your care? Was it a kind of a dual hat position?
0: No, it's not a dual hat position i had done I had done leadership analysis and profiling uh earlier in my career from about nineteen ninety five to nineteen seventy two with my mentor, the late Dr. Gerald Post who founded that field at the CIA and, and led a unit that developed it for 21 years and then moved on to, uh, George Washington university for the next several decades. He died about two years ago. Let's, uh, let's Uh.
1: talk about that then before we get into Moscow embassy in 2002. Yeah. Um, if, If that's okay. Yeah.
0: Sure. No, Gerald post meeting, Gerald post changed my life. Uh, it changed the trajectory of my life. And he was a wonderful person. A, a remarkable, highly intelligent, visionary sort of guy. I actually uh, feel very strongly, I I wrote a letter that was co-signed by about a dozen very, very senior uh, retired CIA officials and current CIA officials, all senior at the senior ranks, who believe Jerry Post should have been posthumously named a CIA trailblazer because he invented really a whole field that defines not only what he did but other people who have followed in his footsteps uh, do. So that was that that was terrific. The way I met him was kind of uh, serendipity. Uh, again, no Google, no internet. I I had read his work as a resident. He had done some studies of profiling terrorist leaders and looking at group dynamics of terrorists, such as the Bader meinhof gang, mm-hmm. or or terrorists uh, associated with, I believe, Islamic Jihad. He had partnered with some Israeli researchers. So I'd read those papers when I was a resident, and I was kind of curious about it. But what really got my attention was he had, um, he had published a profile and presented it publicly of Saddam Hussein in 1991, before the House Armed Services Committee. And this got a lot of publicity and I read it and I thought, wow, that a psychiatrist can use his expertise and knowledge to help uh, help us understand adversary leaders in a national security space and help policymakers. I thought that was just amazingly cool. I was kind of enthralled by it. So I, I started reading more about it. And uh, around 1994, 95, I was uh, really struck by the case of Dr. Radovan Karadzic, the president, then president of the Bosnian Serb Republic, who had earlier in his career been a poet and a psychiatrist. And I actually translated, I got hold of all his poetry and translated it and really wondered how could a person who's a, a literate person, won many poetry awards, a psychiatrist who treated people turn into a genocidal mass murder and uh and his poetry is eerie and haunting and i started writing writing up a paper a profile of karadzic and i called post up and we were talking and he said what are you working on i said karadzic he goes that's funny so am i why don't we get together so he flew to dallas for a wedding a month later and we had a four-hour brunch where we just talked shop and thus began a wonderful collaboration and friendship we published and presented those profiles in the mid 90s for academic uh conferences uh for the u.s government uh and then later in 1999 published a similar profile of serbia's president the late uh, Slovan Milosevic, can, and can, that that's how that collaboration was born can you and well, i'm sorry
2: but I, that that was
0: I, an exciting part of my career
2: i'm just curious how does how does the profile start is it art is it science because we sit here and we look at somebody and go oh he's cray cray but obviously you guys <laughs> That's a non-clinical uh, term. You guys yeah that that's our scientific term for it but you guys like are able to pull apart these threads and compare and contrast and and like you say you know you have on one hand he's writing this you know he's a literate person who has the capacity to write this haunting poetry and he's also genocidal. Like, how does that that whole process start with a profile, and how do you build a profile?
0: Parts of it are, are psychobiographical. The traditional approach to profiling, because it was he- more heavily influenced by uh, not only folks like Gerald Post, but uh, uh, Dr. William Langer in World War II really was the father of this. He was a psychiatrist at Harvard who who was asked by General... William Donovan, the head of the OSS, to develop a profile in late 1942, I think, of Adolf Hitler. Because at that point, the war was starting to turn, and they wanted to know how Hitler would react as the tides of war turned against Germany. And so Langer really did what Post did, or Post borrowed from that model, where he put together a multidisciplinary team of historians, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, internal medicine doctors to review any medical data that you have um, intelligence analysts signals analysts if you're getting any uh, type of covert information about a leader mm-hmm. but most of the information is open source and over uh, and then you put together kind of a a picture of well, you're trying to understand what makes the leader tick sort of what dave was hinting at trying to understand how someone like hitler for example could be Obviously, highly intelligent and intelligent enough to pull together all these business leaders in Germany in 1933 and take power, achieve the Concordat, the diplomatic agreement with the Vatican in 1933, uh, pull together all these parties and then also harness uh, the power afterwards in in 1934 with with the brown shirts and, and other forces that led to him really having much more supreme power by 1936. But trying to understand the trajectory of the leader's political behavior and how it's influenced by the leader's psychology. The traditionalists like Post and Langer would look more at childhood antecedents of that behavior. Uh, but I think it, you have to look at it both ways. and. In my recent work the last couple of years you you sort of go backwards as well a re- a reverse engineering approach where you're looking at uh, we know where they are now how did they get there and how how do they gain legitimacy how do they govern how do they how did they achieve governance outcomes if you will uh-huh. and that's that's an important point because our current adversaries primarily uh, President Xi Jinping of China, one of their one of their propaganda arguments is basically our system works better than yours. Uh We can get things done. We're not flawed. We're not broken. We're not as chaotic. We can achieve efficiencies of scale and governance outcomes. And you have to be fair and look at it that way. The Chinese for, for all of the, the harshness of their regime, uh, the cruelties, the the, the genocide of the Uyghurs comes to mind Uh and, and, many other aggressive behaviors. The CCP has lifted 600 pe- 600 million people out of poverty in the last 30 years. That's a remarkable achievement. So you have to look at it from both ends of the spectrum of a leader's life.
1: Ken, before uh, we move past your, your work uh, dealing with the former Yugoslavia, it, it, when you were speaking, it really reminded me of uh, this book, uh, Soldaten, uh, which I read a while, a years ago. And it's taken from um, transcripts of German POWs during World War II that they secretly recorded them. And wow. uh, I can't remember if it's this book or it might have been Hitler's Willing Executioners, but there's an account in there. You speak about like intellectuals, you know, someone who's an intellectual, who's smart, and still a genocidal maniac. There's a story in one of these books about the the nazi band they were the band they're clarinet and trombone players and they're playing for like an event or a wedding and then the nearby like national guard commandant and said hey why don't you come down to the concentration camp and help us out and they spent the afternoon gleefully shooting jews into a pit and then went back to playing music Mm -hmm. and i I mean it's just stories like that that well like I'm, i'm interested in your analysis like what you came away from uh that work like what was your conclusion about that type of person
0: Sadly, what, we, what we've seen, and I had studied, uh, I had read Robert Lifton's classic work. He was a psychiatrist who wrote a book called The Nazi Doctors. And the saddest part of, of the Holocaust was that the dry run for the Holocaust was a program out in the open in German society in, in the late, mid to late 30s called the T4 euthanasia program, where they basically uh, murdered in hospitals and clinics uh, hundreds of thousands of children who are mentally ill, mentally retarded, uh, and, and you know, what we would call today developmentally disabled. And this program was, was developed and run by physicians from the leading institutions of Germany, the elites, and most of the people who ran the program were psychiatrists. And Lifton has talked about that, exactly what you touch on and i think that's that's something we don't understand that in in genocide you can get ordinary people doing horrible abnormal things just like if you look at the opposite side something very altruistic and and amazing if you've you've had or read about or had medal of honor winners on your show uh and i've i've read books about them and studies about them and they're really very ordinary but they don't say they're heroes they say I'm an ordinary person. I was just doing my job in an extraordinary time. So I think that's really important to understand the broad range of humanity. One of of the mottos of my work is a quote from a a Roman philosopher, Terence, which says, uh, nothing which is human is alien to me. Mm -hmm. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay.
2: So, uh, and I, we don't, we try to, we don't get political on the show. And so I'm not going to mention any countries, but do you have, do you have caution about countries that promote like internal euthanasia, like voluntary euthanasia programs within their own borders and stuff? Like, do you feel that sets a precedence or is, is it its own thing?
0: Yeah, I, that's a separate, you could have a whole separate conversation. Okay. on that. I personally, uh, uh, struggle with that, uh, you know, I think, I think it, it, it really runs the risk of being a slippery slope ethically. And, and that's why we don't do it in this country.
1: Yeah.
2: It's very interesting.
0: So talk to us then
1: about, you know, you do land in the, uh, in the, uh, foreign leaders analysis, uh, wing or department. I'm sorry. I don't remember the exact name of the section. Um, what what was it like actually working there with, you know, some of this doctor that you admired so much?
0: You mean with Dr. Post? Yeah, I was was actually, when I worked with him, I was in Dallas. I was an academic psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And the other other kind of path that led me to this was initially studying foreign leaders who were criminals, meaning like Karadzic and Milosevic, who had been indicted for war crimes. I was a forensic psychiatrist at the time. I worked in emergency rooms. I worked in a large county jail. I was an expert witness in murder trials and sexual assault trials. And uh, and I also worked in a prison clinic, a conditional release clinic for prisoners with mental illness who had been released on parole for, for felony offenses. Many of them were violent offenses. I, if I remember correctly at the time, I had 15 murders on my caseload and I think 35 or 40 uh, child sex offenders, um, drug dealers, armed robbers, and our job was to treat them and we worked side by side with parole officers, and the goal was to keep the patients out of the hospital and keep them from reoffending and going back to prison. So I, I, the, the forensic psychiatry sort of you're getting into what makes the criminal mind thing, tick. So that that part probably played a role in my getting involved in, the, in understanding the cases of Karadzic and Milosevic. It, it
2: was it challenging for you to keep an open mind when you're when you were dealing with those type of people were you able to see them as a person with an illness like how how is that from a human experience
0: yeah again as i you have to you have to see them as human beings to understand them uh i when i was if you're treating them in the jail you 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 know they may have Diagnoses such as antisocial personality, what people call sociopaths, but they also have anxiety or depression or they've had PTSD from traumatic experiences. Uh, They've had other medical problems, traumatic brain injury. Many of these people have been in fights where they're hit on the head with a two by four or a chain or a bat or something like that. So they've grown up around violence. So you have to kind of tease apart what's what medically and psychiatrically and neurologically, and and it's actually very challenging uh, to work in that clinical space. But to do it, you have to be able to sort of uh, be empathic with them and try to understand them. And that's true. That's true in forensic work. You have to kind of put yourself in the defendant's shoes and, and try to understand why would someone do this or what would drive them to do this kind of offense, this kind of crime. Uh, and if you're judgmental, if you go in there with a judgmental attitude, uh, prisoners are really good at picking up on those attitudes. And they, they just will shut down and, you know, won't trust you or talk to you. Mm-hmm. And that's true in profiling leaders. You have to put yourself in the in the mindset of the leader you're trying to understand, try to see them as a human being, empathize and humanize them. That doesn't mean you agree with the horrible right. things that do. But you have to try to achieve that level of understanding.
1: So, can you tell us a little bit about you know your work, your work at that time analyzing foreign leaders and like how would the intelligence community use these profiles that you guys would develop?
0: I, I I think they're the best way to look at them is they they feed into a larger puzzle, and I can probably talk more about that in my current work because there 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 are many more threads, and and now with social media and that. For example, the work that I've published in the Cypher Brief, the CEO and publisher, Suzanne Kelly, has told me they have a million readers uh, a month. So you get a lot of people in the private sector, in the government, and think tanks, and academia are going to read these profiles. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story. Our our adversaries read these too. I've I've seen profiles of mine that were edited, translated, edited, cut, and pasted, and, and Published in Russian in Russian media, I've been quoted in the nor- state North Korean media. Uh, so they're they're reading our stuff too. They want to know what we think. Mm-hmm. So the intelligence community really sees these as a piece of a very large puzzle. It's one component. It's one it's one piece. It's not the be all and end all, but it's designed to help our our policymakers understand these leaders in times of crises, war, and in diplomatic negotiations. And and that I think is more important now than ever, and that's why the people in the government that do this kind of work are valued. And the unit that Doctor Post stood up in 1965 is still in existence today and and functioning uh, very actively.
2: That's fascinating. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it, it was that was that about the same time that the FBI was starting with their uh, sort of profiling serial killers, trying to figure that whole thing out?
0: That's actually a great question because the answer is yes. The other the other the other kind of role of psychiatry and psychology in profiling did come from the FBI in the 70s. But the but the first case and the famous one was a case of a psychiatrist named James Brussel, who was a psychoanalyst practicing in New York. And he had worked with the NYPD, and they had a case for many years of a guy known as the Mad Bomber who would send in these mail bombs to various offices and buildings, and, and he, he killed some people and caused damage, and they couldn't catch him. So they went to Dr. Broussel, uh who wrote a book called Casebook of a Crime Psychiatrist. It's a classic. And they asked him, could you develop a profile of this guy? And and his profile was uncannily accurate without ever seeing the eye. He just studied the crime scenes, uh, read some of the writings. This gentleman, um, Metesky was his name, the criminal, had written letters to, to a company such as Con Ed and to the media. And he analyzed the writing, the content, the handwriting, and he deduced that this uh, individual would probably be living alone, that he was uh, somewhat older in his 30s or 40s, and uh, that if if he didn't live alone, he would live with his mother, and that he may have been employed, but was at the time of this unemployed, and and that he was a white male. and And then he added a very famous line in his profile, and he said, when you arrest him, he will be very neat, and he will be wearing a double-breasted suit. And that's exactly what happened. So that, that work of Bruxelles influenced uh, later the beginning generations of FBI profilers, uh, John Douglas and Roy Hazelwood in the 1970s and 1980s. And actually as a forensic psychiatrist, I've worked on cases with some uh, at the time in the 90s, some uh, FBI profilers. Uh, Alan Brantley comes to mind. And they're they're remarkable people. They have a lot of uh, insight into the criminal mind.
2: Honestly, the guy sounds like the first incel. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but uh, you mentioned handwriting. I mean, you can tell something about a person, like a, a, a psychiatrist can, or a psychologist can tell something about a person from their handwriting.
0: Uh, yeah, there's there's a there's a whole art behind this. I'm not an expert on it. Yeah. I don't comment. I know people who do, but it's graphology, and they can sort of try to deduce personality traits, not disorders, but traits, uh, from uh, someone's handwriting. So someone like Brucell looked at that as one more piece of a larger puzzle. the The other thing that's important, getting back to your question about intelligence analysis leadership analysis is kind of a subset of that okay and it really falls it, it overlaps with medical intelligence because most leaders in the world aren't young they're right. old uh the people i've studied recently uh, vladimir putin xi jinping they're both 70 uh the supreme leader of iran is in his late 80s and is dying of late stage prostate cancer uh Kim Jong-un is relatively young compared to these other leaders, but uh, his father at the time when he died was 68, I believe, uh, Kim Jong-il, and I wrote a profile about him in 2010 after he had had a stroke in 2008, a devastating stroke. So most leaders are, are older, and when they get older, they run into various medical problems, and so that's something where a medical input uh, is very very uh interesting and useful but it's it's really hard to do because our adversary leaders their medical health is a state secret right. these aren't people who release their medical records from their doctor right. in the media like our our presidential candidates do for example
2: right i i want to ask you a follow up question to that but real quick we need to do a give a shout out to our sponsors tonight yeah uh the first one is battling blades um Honestly, guys, check out their website, in the Blades. They have a lot of really phenomenal stuff. They have uh, swords and, and, you know, all types of historical swords. They have um,
1: dice. From... Don't, don't they have dice also?
2: Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> they have swords, knives, hatchets. They have amazing dice sets for any of you tabletop gamers out there. Um, they uh, they also have some stuff if, if you're a Renfair person or a... Uh, or a Comic Con person, they have some fantastic, uh, fantastic gear for that. Where did oh, that one nice. come yes, from,
1: guys. Ken?
0: Where would that one come from, Ken? That's a Hanjar dagger, handmade from Oman, and this is a Georgian Kinjali dagger. Very cool. You know, razor sharp. We have a. Uh, we yeah, are,
1: we have a kukri here from on uh, Kathmandu that I bought. It's over oh, on the other side of the right office. Here.
0: Yeah. Kukri right here, my friend.
1: That's uh that's the kind of the the Gurkhas carry today, isn't it?
0: Yes, yeah. the the when I was in Nepal on on for work on TDY, I, I bought I collect knives. I'm a martial artist as well, so oh, really? I like weapons, knives. So I I Went shopping after a day in the health clinic, and they took me downtown, and there was a store full of swords and kukri blades, and I was like the kid in the candy jar.
2: Yeah, I mean, what what, what? in that case, Ken, you should probably check out Battling the Blades, too. I mean, they have a Gladys I've got my eye on. But <laughs> check them out, guys. uh Team House, for the coupon code, for 20% off. That's com.
1: Team House, for 20% off. All one word, Team House. Um, and we also have SAP Gear tonight. It's another sponsor of this show. Uh, SAP Gear makes a lot of really cool—I um, would say—gadgets, but gear um, for you know people in the special operations community, people who work in the NGO space, uh, even people who work for like the United Nations, for example. A lot of things to uh, escape unlawful kidnapping and, and restraints. Um, they make a lot of E&E tools like necklaces and things that you can wear underneath your clothes that have like shims and lock picks and handcuff keys built into them. Yeah, they have
2: some great tech gear just to keep yourself safe. Like eh, tech gear that everybody can use mm-hmm. um, to keep, like if you plug your your phone into an Uber car to charge to make sure that that Uber driver isn't jacking your information um, and it's it's just a plug. I mean
1: it's simple stuff. And so that is can be all that can be found at sapgear.com. And if you use the promo code TEAM, you'll get fifteen percent off your order. So sapgear.com and use the promo code TEAM, you'll get fifteen percent off. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky.
2: Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess?
0: uh in my dentist's office. More than once, actually.
2: Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase
1: necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: So, Ken, out of curiosity, like, what martial arts do you study? What, what? That's about your boat? To ask.
0: I, I got interested in martial arts when I was a medical student and I studied I've studied Aikido for over thirty years. Uh and then when I was in Russia, um when I was in Austria I studied Bujinkan in jutsu for two years. And when I was in Russia, I studied Systema uh from the uh-huh. founder of Systema, uh uh, uh a retired uh Spetsnaz Colonel yep. Mikhail Lipko, and I became I think I was the first diplomat to be a student in Moscow, certainly the first American. Uh, I studied there for three years, the second tour that I was there. And at the end of the tour, he made me a certified instructor. That's pretty and I've cool. studied under his top student in Toronto, Vladimir Vasilyev, who was also a uh, Spetsnaz uh, soldier in his youth. Can, can that I, was a remarkable experience.
1: Yeah, can I ask you what's your opinion of Sistema? Like, I've heard different things from different people over the years, but I've never heard from somebody with like your level of experience who trained directly under the guys.
0: I I, I love it. I I admit my bias. I think Sistema is a great martial art because it's a complete martial art because it involves elements not only of the movement and the strikes and the groundwork and mm-hmm. working with weapons. But but breathing and the health aspects, I think are really good it was It was really, really good for my health. uh It really changed my whole way in which you view the mind and the body connection w- during that kind of training. The training was very demanding right. uh, The Russians were not easy on me right. they didn't think I was a diplomat or a psychiatrist <laughs> you <Yeah. can> imagine. <laughs> they They pounded the living daylights out of me, tried to get me to quit. And I I'm not the quitting type. I'm I'm kind of an adventuresome person. And I, I also forgot to mention I was a rock climber as a kid. I was a five eleven rock climber Wow. Back in the really? So I, I like adventure and having fun and martial arts is a lot of fun. And I I became very I guess they accepted me. I learned about their culture. I I my Russian became very fluent. I actually was an interpreter for seminars where they would have attendees from all over the world. Uh, that was funny how that happened. I was standing around watching Mikhail talk, and one of the other teachers said, "What are you doing there, you idiot?" Translate. I go, "Me?" He goes, "Yeah, you're bilingual." You. <laughs> so that's how I started doing that. For but
2: sure it's
0: that? a it's a it's a great art, and it's it's the art of the spetsnaz. When you when you see videos of it and the way they move, you can see they've borrowed elements from other arts such sure. as aikido, jujitsu, tai chi weapons work, sword fighting, Sambo, uh, Sambo, Sambo. Yeah. It's, it's, there are really two main schools. There's Mikhail Rybko's school, uh, which is more Moscow centric and, and in they have schools in Tver. uh, And he has, you know, people split off like Valentin Talanov, one of his top students split off and formed his own system, but very similar. And then they have the Kadochnikov school, which is really tightly linked with the GRU. And I've trained, when I traveled in Russia, I trained with people who were linked with that school and but it 's very similar they, yeah. they they have the same movement, the same style, the same style of training. One of the things that 's interesting about the Russians is uh, the, the first time I went to a systema school, they were training with live blades. It was slow and careful, but still live blades you could get cut, you could get mm-hmm. hurt. You would never do this in the u s because of the risk of lawsuits. Mm-hmm. So I asked one of the Russian teachers why don't you use plastic blades and aren't you worried about the risk of someone getting hurt and they said well if they got hurt it means they weren't paying attention <laughs> right <laughs> it's a different culture
2: <laughs> it, It's funny because I think sistema is sort of like Krav Maga where where if you study it at its root or if you study it from somebody who is actually taking it from that it's valuable that, yeah. it, it's they're they're very comprehensive very effective arts and then but by the time you
1: get to the American strip mall by the karate, time, yeah. By the time yeah. it's in
2: an American strip mall, it's generally somebody who has rebrand. You know, they've like they've just taken a bunch of stuff that they got from videotapes and they call it, you know, sistema or they call it krav maga, and they're like, yeah, it's it's a complete, you know, it's a complete thing. Like you're not getting the real stuff a lot of times here in the states.
0: Well, the the arts get diluted. My my aikido training was very very. Um, it, it, it involved elements of cross training with judo and jiu-jitsu and boxing because my teachers, the late Bill Sosa, and my other teacher, his son Ricardo Sosa, um, they they had Rick. Uh, Rick was sensei. Rick was a Marine in Vietnam, and there were lots of soldiers that would and former military that would take these classes. We had a lot of police officers, and they want realism. They want to know, is this going to work? Right. Uh, if i have to use it to deal with the situation on the job as a police officer so it it had to have elements of realism in the training the risk the risk that you that you highlight is training can be diluted and uh, from what i've heard the training uh, in system under mikhail uh, was much harder in the 80s and 90s than it is now. It was still very hard. Right. When we rolled around at first, there were no mats. Right. Uh, you rolled around on a hard surface, and it's a cruel teacher. If you're not rolling softly and properly and breathing right, you get banged up very, very quickly. Right. So I had to learn. I had to relearn how to roll. I thought I knew how to roll from rolling on mats in Aikido, but right. I didn't know how to. roll. I had to relearn.
2: Yeah, I mean the problem. The problem is any art that starts out like that. If you want to pay the bills, uh, yeah, you, know, you, you can't just bring in the hardcore that are willing to that, like uh, get thrown on a on a tatami or on a on a hard floor.
1: That that reminds me of the the Jim West model. Yeah, that my my friend Jim West taught uh, martial arts to special forces, and he he had told me in the past like I was a good trainer, but I didn't really have the business acumen. Right. <laughs> people right. would come in and get bloody noses and right. black eyes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Uh, it's good stuff.
0: Yeah, but I, I loved every minute of it. And it was also one of the things that it helped me learn about uh, dealing with real Russians. One of the risks you have when you work in an embassy, it got me out of the embassy. Aside from my constant TDY travels, I was traveling every other week to a different country. But you you talk to regular people, people from all walks of life. My Russian improved. You're You're getting out of the embassy where you tend to deal mostly with the contacts in the embassy tend to be elites who think like we do in many ways. They're well-educated. They speak English. So it's different when you get out of the embassy and get, get on the street level. And I learned that from many of my friends in the intelligence world. They said, when you move to a big city like Moscow or Mexico or New Delhi, you know, learn the culture, learn your city and get out of the embassy. So I, I took that, I took that mantra to heart. And, same with with uh the book i showed you earlier by general walter's silent missions he would he would practice his languages and dialects with taxi drivers and motor pool drivers so i do the same thing in in moscow the rides to the airports were long you could stuck in traffic for an hour and a half two hours so you could have conversations with just regular people uh and you learn a lot about the country about the culture and they ask you questions and that opens your eyes to to different cultures. I really enjoyed that That's part amazing. as well. Ken,
2: I have to ask you, how many languages do you or did you speak at one time?
0: At at, at different times, let me guess. Uh, Slovene, which I no longer speak. I spoke as a child. Uh, Serbo-Croatian, uh, that can come back pretty quickly and fluently. Russian, same thing. I The only language I use right now in my work is Spanish. I learned it. Uh, before I went to Mexico back in the nineties. And then when I was stationed in Mexico city and traveling in Mexico, Latin America, I mean, Central America and the Caribbean, uh, like the Dominican Republic, Cuba, uh, then I, my Spanish improved. So I speak Spanish and a little bit of German and I, I used to speak French, but I haven't used it.
1: So let's, uh, let's dive uh, into your time in Moscow at the embassy a little bit more. Um. Correct me if I'm wrong. You were in charge of, you know, kind of maintaining the helping to maintain the mental health of the government, U.S. government employees who are also stationed there.
0: Yes. And their families.
1: And what what was that experience like? I mean, I'm, I'm you know, the thing that jumps right at me uh, to me is some of the, you know, worst stories I've heard from like crusty case officers about being under constant surveillance and what like a high stress environment Moscow is to operate in.
0: Yeah, all of us, all of us were under under high stress surveillance because they assumed that every diplomat stationed there is is a case officer. Right. And and as I told you, uh, they didn't really know what to make of me when I was there because they thought you're not really a psychiatrist. You know, you you're into martial arts. You worked <laughs> with the CIA profiler because that stuff was published in the open, and you speak Russian and these other languages. <laughs> And I had three passports and I traveled all the time. So they didn't believe that I was just kind of a psychiatrist. So I was I had to deal with the same stressors. You learn about the same stressors that our diplomats and intelligence officers and military officers go through. And and it takes a real psychological toll on people. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when I got there, I asked the pros in the diplomatic or intel community. These are Russia hands who've speak Russian, and had often done multiple tours in, in Russia or the former Soviet Union. I said, how do you deal with this? And I knew how to deal with it somewhat, because in the 70s, I had lived in Eastern Europe, in Yugoslavia. Uh, I lived in Belgrade for a year in the, in the mid-70s. And so I remember as a teenager getting harassed by the secret police and being under surveillance. But it's it's another higher order in a place like like Moscow. Sure. And it, it takes a toll on people's psyches. So you have to, you can't minimize it. You have to hear it from the person's side, what it's like to never have privacy, to never be alone, you you know, to have phone calls uh, late at night made to your apartment phone and then they hang up or, yeah. you know, you you walk in, your, your phone is suddenly not working and then the next day it's working. And, and there's a whole new list of, email addresses added to it stuff like that and, and you would see sir, you, i would see surveillance when i'd walk around moscow just with my wife and my kid and go to go to go to the red square in the nice days go to the kremlin ride the metro that sort of thing get a cup of coffee be a shopper you would at times see surveillance or you'd get pulled i'd get pulled over because my first tour in moscow I lived uh, about 18 miles from downtown. It was a very long commute. And the police would pull you over randomly for no reason. And and that, that creates a lot of strain when you've had a 10-hour workday and there's a blizzard and you're cold, you want to get home. And some you know 19-year-old cop who can barely read your papers and passport pulls you over, takes your passport in a little hut, disappears for half an hour then comes back, it, it's designed to create stress. Yeah. And that's exactly what it does. The Russians have two motives with our diplomats. Uh the first one is to recruit you. The second one, if they can't recruit you, is to run you off.
2: Yeah. And I, I think I mean for people who have never been under surveillance, like one of the challenges with surveillance also is when you know you're under surveillance or when you know that it's very possible for you to be under surveillance, you start seeing it everywhere. And it, it, you know, the guy reading a paper who just happens to glance at you, like you're locked on and it's like, it, like you're always on edge, even when there's not a reason to be.
0: Yeah, you have to it, in it, it's it's very difficult for people who are uh, who I know, who are friends of mine, who served in different parts of the world with hard surveillance, who were case officers, because there it's a life and death thing. Right. Uh if if I'm out running around and I see surveillance or miss it, I'm just going shopping. It's not a life or death situation because I'm not meeting with a contact where if they get caught, I get PNG'd, but the contact gets jailed or executed. So right. the, that adds to the pressure on many of our employees in these types of places overseas that if, if they make a mistake, it can have really severe consequences. So that ratchets up the pressure on on their psyche and and again people would get used to being under surveillance every time they even on the embassy compound but even every time they left the embassy compound whether they went to the gym or went to a cultural event or took the metro to go down to red square you you were always uh under surveillance and i would my surveillance would go up whenever i was a a control officer for medical visitors. Uh, a- any visitor always has an officer who's their control. You make their hotel reservations. You meet them at the airport. You take them downtown. And so I remember I I was a uh, uh, control officer for a senior medical officer. Uh, and he, uh, I was waiting at at one of the large airports in Moscow. And this gentleman came up to me and said, you must be Dr. declave I said, in, in Russian. I said, yes, how kind of you. And he goes, are you waiting for Dr. So-and-so? And I said, yes, actually, I am. Um, and he said, could I be of assistance? I said, no, you know, I'm fine. I've lived here for about a year. But if you give me a card, I'll call you if anything comes up. And then he disappeared like it right. goes. <laughs> so the the other thing I learned with sur- with surveillance is um, you you have to sort of learn how to deal with them and not completely alienate them and piss them off because right. then they can – they can ratchet up the pressure and kind of target you and just make you miserable and right. make your family miserable. That was the other thing I saw The the impact on families, many of the diplomats and officers and military people and FBI and other agencies who serve in a place like Moscow, they they may have specialized training to deal with that, but their family members don't, their kids don't. Mm-hmm. So that's that, you know, they, the Russians are, can get very ugly and they'll, they'll they'll add to the harassment of of the spouses and i often had to support the spouses and meet with them in a group in in a proper setting a safe setting in the embassy where we could try to understand how to help them how to mitigate and how to support them so that they could not feel terrified uh many many people will describe being under surveillance as is a violation those were the words patients would tell me in my office i'm talking about people You know crying and sobbing and saying i feel violated because i have to show my id or my passport the police are always stopping me because most americans that live in a upper middle class suburb who are white have never had the experience of being pulled over by a cop and said show me your papers now Mm -hmm. sadly in our country you know if you look at racial profiling and policing many of our uh people of color our friends who are people of color will tell you those experiences in their childhood, adolescence, and even adulthood. So they, they learn to adapt to it. Many of them do. But most people who look like me don't learn to adapt to it. I only learned because I had lived in those kind of settings before. But I tried to share that knowledge with people so they could adapt and cope. The other way to cope is respite. And that's what the pros and the seniors told me, is, uh, including people in the intel and military communities, said, Every two or three months, you need to take a break and get out of russia and uh and fly to Western Europe, where you can let your hair down right. uh, and and so that that respite was very important, even for a few days, it allows diplomats and their families to recharge their batteries. But this is an important topic. I actually argued the state department has a a all the other agencies follow what the state Department does, so they have a rating for every embassy in the world, a hardship scale and and uh moscow at the time when i left was 20 percent which is pretty significant that means there's political hardship other hardships language isolation people that don't speak english uh, and i argued that surveillance was an important and harassment was an Uh important metric of that psychological hardship even though it's not as easy to measure as a hardship like there's piles of garbage on every street corner that's more measurable
2: Right.
0: Uh, Right. But I think there's a better understanding of that now in the State Department and the other agencies. Like they might say, like
2: a third world country or developing country was a hardship where Moscow wasn't. But that was yeah, like
0: disease. India, where I served because of tropical disease and you're constantly sick uh, with enteric illness. So that would be a huge variable for and asthma, you know, New Delhi is the worst air pollution in the world right now, even worse than China's. So so. I'm,
1: I'm curious, you know, uh, when you had somebody at the embassy in Moscow come into your office and they're like stressed out on the, I mean, I've heard, you know, of case officers actually quitting because they couldn't handle it, you know, because it's such a demanding environment. Um, I'm just interested, what were the techniques for like mental management that you tried to teach your patients?
0: Again, as I said, uh uh, respite was very important you know you would sometimes some of the uh uh diplomats and officers would work a very long stretch without 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 getting a break like Mm -hmm. not taking even a three or four day vacation to get away uh and then the stress would build up it'd be cumulative it's like it's like if you're an x-ray tech you wear a little radiation badge in the clinic or the hospital, right, and when you've had too much radiation, you can't be around anymore. right and we told them it's kind of like that you you're you're not going to be effective in your mission in your job if you're under that much pressure, so we would teach them about you know breathing exercises, regular exercise, respite, uh trying to help them find what what today, for lack of a better term, is called work life balance and and that's hard to do because many of the uh, in many of the countries i've worked in the military and intelligence officers often had you know one and a half or two jobs they had a job they did during the day and another job they did in the evenings right. and the weekend so the hours were very long and how to balance long hours with the mission and this can be challenging because in in a place like moscow uh regardless of whether you're with the state department or another uh office or agency, the mission comes first. So that can be very, very difficult for people, as you pointed out.
2: Now, as a doctor, you obviously have ways, you know, you're not judging these people for, you know, you're encouraging them to seek treatment. Was there ever any kind of institutional resistance that you met with that? That
0: uh, Yeah, unfortunately, all, all diplomats and their, and their uh, family members have to have a medical clearance to serve overseas. And that was a huge barrier to people seeking our care. Mm-hmm. It, it's the analogy would be with, you know, pilots don't go to flight surgeons and talk about their stressors because they're afraid they'll get grounded. Right. The reality is that that from the time I joined and onward, and we've done studies and shared this data when I was with the State Department, you, the the chances of being medically curtailed uh, because of a treatable psychiatric illness were very very low. I mean very low. Like I I I'm off the top of my head maybe 2% of people I saw would be would be curtailed. So most would see me and go about their business. They'd get treatment either therapy or medications or both. A lot of cases required reassurance and kind of stress management techniques. One or two visits and that was good enough. But uh that that stigma's there. Uh part of it is the corporate culture in, in places like the State Department, the law enforcement community, the intelligence community, which is, you know, you're a nice person, but I'm not going near your office. So <laughs> we, it's, it's a barrier that, that we have to overcome. So we would overcome it by by education, by being visible, by kind of hanging out at the water cooler, eating in the cafeteria, letting people see that we are just regular people. One of the things that helps is when you're a A physician or nurse practitioner or psychiatrist with the State Department, the medical program has several hundred people in these different roles. Psychiatry is a very small number, though. You live and work among the community that you treat. So they see you in the gym. They see you at the commissary store. They see you in church. They see you at the airport. Uh, Your kid goes to school with their kids. So you learn that. Uh, and, and that probably helps break down some of the barriers, but not totally.
1: And then go ahead.
0: Uh, well you, the other thing,
1: uh, you mentioned to us that you were involved in at the embassy was crisis response. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, the program really had its roots in crisis response in the late seventies when the first two psychiatrists, Elmore Rigamer was sent to Kabul, uh, as the first regional psychiatrist. Uh, following the murder uh, in Afghanistan of Ambassador Spike Dubs in 1979. And the as you can imagine, the community, the small embassy community, was traumatized by this, and they felt that the that mental health need was a viable thing uh, that needed that level of support. So uh, Dr. Rigamer uh, went out there and I think spent a, a year or two in in Kabul until the embassy closed after the uh, 1979, uh, December 1979 invasion of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union. And around the same time, they had a second psychiatrist in Washington who was a friend and mentor of mine, Dr. Esther Roberts, who was really a pioneer, she's retired now, who was one of three psychiatrists that accompanied the 52 Iranian hostages from Algiers, to uh Wiesbaden Air Force Base in Germany for medical and psychological debrief and psychiatric debriefings following their four hundred fifty four days of being hostages mm-hmm. in Tehran so that 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 was kind of the beginning and the model of responding to crises but as as the when I joined the program uh the types of crises that uh, I and my colleagues again there were about a dozen of us at the time now there are about two dozen overseas will respond to crises such as terrorist attacks during the war on terror uh earthquakes tsunamis like i had to respond in sri lanka after the 2004 tsunami uh that was my region uh the fukushima earthquake in japan in 2011 uh the 2000 i think 13 earthquake in Kathmandu, uh and and things like that uh our people would respond to and provide support uh, basically when whenever a crisis happened we pretty much knew we would be showing up there within a couple of days to, as part of a medical and team to provide behavioral health and mental health support uh, in addition to the routine clinical work that we did and and i forgot to mention the pandemic obviously i mean yeah. that's talk about crisis response that's been a worldwide crisis response i retired in late 2016 but the pandemic has has had to redo people have had to redo the, the whole paradigm of how they respond to crises mm-hmm. uh, especially when you can't travel when all travel shut down
2: with with such a, a, a small number of psychiatrists kind of spread across the world handling these things I'm sure that you've run across high performers, people who perform well in their field, whatever that is, but who are running on the ragged edge, mm. but maybe like are burying like their stuff in, you know, just with drive, with work. Have, have you encountered those types of people? How do you handle those types of people? If they're not going to come see you or not, you know, like how do you save somebody from themselves when you see it?
0: Well, the way you the way I would do it in a place like Moscow so again, I would make myself visible. You engage with people. You you give talks. You you meet with small groups informally in different office settings. When I would go to an embassy on TDY, I would meet with everyone. In in a small embassy, I might meet with every single employee informally, not in my office. I'd go to their office mm-hmm. where they're more comfortable and just not in a doctor patient role, but just ask how are you doing, kind of. The military model of this is unit cohesion assessment, Uh trying to get a picture of what are the stressors on people in that particular embassy? Are they internal, meaning inside the embassy because of poor leadership or people can't get along and in different work units and do their job together? Are they external stressors from the environment outside the embassy, i.e. the host country, or both? And so I I found it really worthwhile to just talk to people informally kind of a water cooler type of conversation make them comfortable and and sometimes people with a higher level of symptomatology or stress would eventually find my way to to my office in a formal doctor patient uh relationship but it might start out informally so you have to be comfortable with with that with giving advice to people who who may say doc you know I'm I'm doing fine I don't need to see you but I can't sleep Mm-hmm. You know, they'll, they're will they going to ask you while you're at a picnic drinking a beer, you know, what can I do for my sleep? Well, I'm not going to. It's too rigid if I said, I'm sorry, I can't answer your question unless you come to my office. Right. That's just not going to work. Right. So I might say, you know, cut back on your caffeine, drink less liquor, work out more, you know, don't drink too much coffee or energy drinks, practice good sleep hygiene, you know, take care of any other health problems. You know, primary care type health problems. You know, if you have high blood pressure, diabetes, you know, chronic pain, anything like that, you know, you sort of answer their question in a practical, matter of fact way, and and that's how you gain trust.
2: Right, right. So you wouldn't go right into like, how is your relationship with your mother? Uh, and <laughs> no. I, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. Uh, but so, I mean, did people did people require a lot of reassurance that they weren't going to lose their job for talking to you.
0: Yeah. But what would uh, not, re- yes and no. I mean, once they saw me and then what would happen is people would, people would, you know, uh, a large number of people, uh, someone in their family, be it the employee, the spouse, about half the people I saw in my career were employees. The other half were spouses and kids. Mm-hmm. um, you know, once they realized that they would see you and life goes on, then that would help, too. Yeah. Uh, about a third of the patients I saw in my work overseas were children, children with ADHD, with learning disabilities. And we were a big help to them because we could, once we documented it, they could get U.S. government support, mm-hmm. something called the special needs allowance, to the tune of, you know, $75,000 a year for school, for specialized tutors. If they needed testing, we we could get them psychologically you know, tested and evaluated. So parents welcome that. If if uh, if you have people in these high-stress positions, a diplomat, an intel officer, a military officer, a DEA agent, an FBI agent, and and they're worried about their child who's flunking school uh, because they can't learn because they got a learning disability or early autism, then they can't focus on their job and on the mission. So a huge part of our job comes from that motto—it's a Special Ops motto, really, which was developed in in the Special Ops world by a legendary, heroic doctor named Rob Marsh, who was the first flight surgeon for Delta Force. And he 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 was very very uh, active. You know, he deployed 300 days a year with his team, but he also knew back home at base, I, I guess Fort Bragg, or where, where they were stationed. You had to take care of the family and the kids too. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise the operators can't do their job. Mm-hmm. So I, I took that, that kind of thinking to heart. Uh, and, and, you know, I borrowed some of that and I learned from special operations, medical models, took courses in that, talked to people in that world. You know, their motto for doctors was mooch and travel light. Ken,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to, um, you know, again, plumb your knowledge a bit here since you have such a unique view and you, you worked in Moscow. You mentioned that you were in Cuba at one point. I wanted to ask you about the Havana syndrome. And for the the folks out there who aren't sure what I'm talking about, you can look it up. There's a lot of stuff in the news. But this phenomenon where we have members of the intelligence community appearing to have been affected by something. And it, I, I've heard the term directed beam used, but there's yeah. no clear conclusive evidence publicly
2: first interview interview with mark polyma he talked about it a lot he talks about there's
1: there's no as far as i know there's no publicly available conclusive proof of what this phenomena is and
2: it was denied by the government for a long time yeah uh,
1: yeah yeah and um you know guys are coming down with some you know debilitating symptoms to the point that they have to resign from government service ken i was wondering if you could tell us about you know what you know about that what your perspective is
0: Sure. I, I became interested in it because the first cases appeared in early 2017, a couple months after I had left government. And, and I've been to Cuba on, on, for work, on TDY work, uh, twice. And Cuba, Havana is a fascinating but very stressful place. And so I was kind of dumbstruck when I read about the first cases and read the first medical reports out of the University of Miami, University of Pennsylvania. And 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 a couple other centers where these folks were treated. Uh, now most of them are going to Walter Reed, and finally they're getting uniform treatment in one place with a treatment model. But I also had an interest in this because in in my in my current work in my clinic, I've seen about 200 patients referred to me by otolaryngology and neurology who have these kind of symptoms. Now it's not called Havana syndrome because they're not diplomats overseas, but they have syndromes with chronic neurovestibular syndromes with dizziness vestibular migraines trouble with concentration and memory brain fog headaches uh anxiety uh depression and other other neurologic findings so uh these patients get referred to psychiatry because some of the best treatments for them are psychiatric medications in addition to specialized types of physical therapy called vestibular therapy Uh, and, and uh, uh, also uh, cognitive behavioral therapies can be helpful if you start them early enough. So what happened overseas was you had this real puzzle, a real medical mystery puzzle, and it still doesn't have an answer of young, pretty healthy people. Remember, like I said, To serve overseas, especially in an austere place like Cuba, you have to have good health and a medical clearance to support that, because you don't have a lot of medical resources in Cuba compared to, let's say, in Western Europe. Uh, And that that was a real challenge, because we saw in the 2017 reports in 2018, young, healthy people in their 30s and 40s, uh, without prior health histories of significance, suddenly coming down with these debilitating symptoms. And and no uh, no obvious cause. And there was a a panel, the National Academy of Sciences, chaired by Dr. David Relman of Stanford, uh, a very distinguished uh, physician and infectious disease researcher, chaired a panel, a multidisciplinary panel of scientists and physicians, including neuroscientists, to look at possible causes. And one of the theories they came is that it looked like. At least for the people in Cuba, there was a directed uh, microwave energy weapon that could have been used. Uh, but there was a lot of grief for many of these patients, many of whom, as you pointed out, have suffered. Some have been forced to medically retire from the U.S. government. Yeah. And they've had really dramatic shows on 60 Minutes. I mm-hmm. encourage people to watch those. And and so it's still a mystery as to the cause. Um there's no obvious kind of smoking gun cause. Now, what's very interesting, and, and I follow this very carefully, and I actually uh, helped organize a conference on this in Dallas earlier uh, in 2022, so on Havana syndrome, where we had clinicians and outside experts like Mark Polymeropoulos, uh Dan Hoffman, uh, Ambassador Eric Rubin, and James, Dr. James Giordano and Dr. uh Georgetown and DARPA and Dr. Jeff Staub of the Mayo Clinic, who's a psychiatrist who's the leading expert on these dizziness syndromes. So we kind of brought in clinicians to look at the bedside clinic view Mm -hmm. and then brought in outside experts to look at it from the policy view, from the 30,000 foot view, how it's affecting government and diplomacy. And what's happened is many, uh, state department and CIA officers, um, Uh, at that time, in 2020, 2021, 2022, were afraid to serve overseas. They were afraid they would be victimized by this. So thankfully, uh, I think Director Burns at the CIA has done a very fine job of outreach to the victims and setting up novel programs for screening and pre-screening and and more safety valves. That being said, we still don't know the cause uh, to the... And it's not only intel officers, but diplomats have also been uh, affected by this. And uh, I think more research is, is is clearly necessary. The other thing I would add is uh, bad actors such as the Russians have published in the open source biophysical literature, open source in English, for years, uh, uh, theories and papers about using... Uh, electromagnetic radiation as a weapon that could disrupt the nervous system Mm -hmm. so there are there are researchers in adversary countries that are that are interested in these technologies for potentially uh nefarious purposes right
2: and and they don't have to kill in fact it benefits them not to like it's not an assassin's bullet right right it's a deterrent it's like these guys these these you know people come down sick who else, now who wants to go to Cuba? Who wants to go to Moscow? Who wants to go to these places?
0: Yeah, there were about two dozen reports in 2019 and 2020 that, I, if I recall correctly, is at the time? Yeah, that were out of Vienna, uh, where I would also had been stationed. And uh, so uh, there were cases all over the world in 2021. Even a member of uh, Director Burns team traveling with him to New Delhi, India was affected, and uh, a member of Vice President Kamala Harris's team uh, flying from Singapore to Hanoi was impacted, and there were countless cases in other African, European, Latin American countries, so it it really became a very, very dramatic uh, puzzle, but they felt it wasn't due to other agents such as crickets for example you know or bees or something like that it wasn't psychosomatic and i think that was where the initial reports relied over relied sadly on an fbi behavioral analysis report that claimed all these people were psychosomatic right uh given that they have the kind of symptoms that patients i've seen in my clinic have with neurovestibular syndromes i i they're not psychosomatic. They're the symptoms are real. They can be very disabling. They can be very scary, and and very dangerous. I've had patients that are so severely afflicted from these symptoms that they get suicidal. Then you have to put them in the hospital in the psychiatric unit. Yeah. So it, it, these are tough illnesses to treat. The good news is with treatments, many of them get better. But treatments, ought, like in any area of medicine, they often work better if you catch the illness earlier if it's had more chronicity and more time to fester, then it can be tricky. But I was was also glad that people like, you know, Director Burns has spoken publicly about getting behind this at Mm -hmm. the CIA. Mark Polymeropoulos, a former senior leader at the CIA, has been very public about this Mm -hmm. in his podcast writings and in his his book on leadership, clarity, and crisis, which Mm -hmm. is an excellent book.
2: And Mark, you know, talked to us about how difficult, you know, how how the how institutionalized, the it's sort of like the uh, burn pit thing or Asian yeah. orange, where the government is going to deny it for as long as they can.
1: He had to go to the press, <laughs> get it blown up in the Washington Post, I think. And that was when they started offering treatment to people.
0: Well, part of the problem with medical things in a bureaucracy like the State Department or, or the CIA, these are large bureaucracies, government bureaucracies, is that... Uh, It's easier for senior people. I think Mark Polymeropoulos was the equivalent of an SIS three or four. He had the juice and the rank to go public and make statement. But uh, a first or second tour diplomat without tenure is going to be, they're going to be a bit more queasy and cautious about bringing up personal health symptoms right. in, in sense of the word and, and, uh, for fear that it would hurt their career
2: right and they don't have the clout like a, no who's going to listen to a gs-13 about
1: about their issues right i mean they don't have the career stability yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um let's get into the foreign leader analysis a bit should we okay. st- should we start with uh vladimir putin
0: uh, I'm open whatever <laughs> you should <laughs> let's let's
1: jump into it ken what's what is going dirt. on inside no, the I'm... what what's going on inside the mind of putin
0: Well, let me start by making a few general comments one one of the things I've learned from studying are adversary leaders, and I also want to point out for your listeners and viewers I don't profile American leaders as colorful as they may be and interesting as they may be i i I play for the home team right. so the but the but the tradition I come from from Langer and Post is one of uh, profiling uh, foreign adversaries, and they these adversaries that I've studied have a lot in common. What I call the three R's: they're they're rational leaders, they're rational actors. In their sense of rationality, they tend to be pretty ruthless. They're very resilient. They have lots of staying power, uh, and and in the case of Putin, and we'll talk more about it. Uh, certainly revanchist of wanting to kind of remake uh, re- make Russia great again or remake the former Soviet Union in terms of its pre-1991 you know 1991 borders um, the resilience is important to know because there's often a lot of wishful thinking in analyzing these leaders in, in the media and even in think tanks and in the government that they're somehow going to go away uh, uh, but people when kim il sung the founder of modern north korea died in 1994 if i'm getting my date right people thought kim jong-il wouldn't last more than a few months well he lasted till 2011 mm-hmm. when his son uh the current leader chairman kim jong-un took over at the age of we don't know how old he is exactly i think he was 26 at the time people thought he was kind of a nothing burger and wouldn't last long and and that other more powerful elites would topple him. Well that's not been the case. So we've had some real intelligence failures in terms of prediction of longevity. Uh President Putin has been in power for, for uh as president for now for almost you know twenty three years. Yeah. So they, they have longevity and resilience and they're they're very tough, formidable adversaries. They're all highly intelligent. Uh, but that's true of most leaders when they get to that level. People, psychologists that have actually done retrospective kind of hypothetical IQ tests on leaders find that these people uh, tend to be people of very, very high intelligence and high political intelligence. Mm-hmm. So that those are kind of the general concepts. So what's Putin like? I mean, by now, Putin's story is well known. He He was a... Basically, a single, uh, you know, the only child. He had uh, his mother lost a child in childbirth, and another uh, sibling died during the war of infection. Uh, from born to kind of salt of the earth, hard Scrabble uh, parents, uh, his mother had a third grade education, worked in a factory, and his father was a, a decorated uh, but disabled special forces veteran of World War 2 and the siege of Leningrad in which Putin's mother almost died of starvation the famous 900-day siege where a million uh, Soviet citizens died. So that's what Putin who was born in 52 grew up hearing about in in common culture and and in uh he was surrounded by it. You couldn't escape it because the right. uh, Soviet Union lost 25 million people during the war. They lost more but than anybody, right? I mean yeah yeah he was fired by his dreams and ambitions as a young man and dr post used to write about this about dreams of ambition and glory that many of these leaders will develop even when they're young when they're teenagers or young adults uh where he wanted to join the kgb and join the pantheon of heroes and he did join the kgb at a time when when uh then chairman uh, yuri andropov was kind of Hiring people not just from the elites, but from uh, different sectors of life, from smaller cities and villages, and and plucking out more and more talent, if you will. And and the other thing that shaped Putin as a as a youngster was his two things: his love of German, uh, which he's mastered to real fluency, as shown in his 2001 really remarkable speech to the uh, Bundestag. And his love of martial arts, he grew up studying Sambo, and then he's been a lover of Judo, and he's ranked, I think, eighth Don in Judo uh, since he was about 10 years old.
1: And now that he's he's been in power for so long, there's a lot of people who are also speculating um, that his mental health has deteriorated. Uh, I spoke to one uh, analyst, actually. It might have been Aaron Schwartzbaum when we had him on that something that has affected his thinking actually was the pandemic and that it put him into isolation. And, uh, he did a lot of reading, uh, a lot of reading that would be sort of like Russian QAnon, uh, sorts of, again, the the delusions of grandeur of a greater Russian empire and a a mythical Russian past that was stolen from them. And I I was wondering what your thoughts are about where he is today.
0: I, I think we have to be careful with Putin in this case. It's, it's, Because Putin's decision to invade the Ukraine looks at this point in time like really a horrible strategic intelligence failure, uh, then when when leaders make bad decisions or decisions that go wrong, there's a temptation then to think, gosh, they must be off their rocker. They must be crazy. There must be something wrong with them. Because Putin has been seen as kind of a master including by me is a master tactician and a master strategist and and a very good diplomat all these years to woo the leaders of the west from from the uk in the early 2000s to germany to austria to france to italy uh, his relationships with multiple u.s presidents dating back to uh president clinton at the end of president clinton's term when president clinton met him george w bush uh president obama president trump and now president biden so i think there's a temptation to use reasoning that can get flawed which is to say because they made a bad decision with bad outcomes there must be something wrong with them mentally that that's way too superficial and simplistic in my opinion the 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 other thing is to go farther and say there's something medically or neurologically wrong like does he have dementia or maybe he has parkinson's parkinson's disease with cognitive impairment, uh, or maybe as cancer and he is on chemotherapy. There's a lot of theories, but everything that I've seen in studies suggests that he is a fairly healthy 70 year old. And and whenever they've had these reports come out of Putin dying or being in very ill health, you know, two days later, you'll see him conducting a news conference or meeting with a group of people and, and looking pretty sprightly. Uh, I do think he's probably had athletic injuries from playing uh, hockey for years. Uh, in the last decade and a half, he's taken up hockey, which is not, it's not a great sport for someone his age. For, for, for uh, a 60-year-old to start, yeah. Yeah, he's good at it. I've seen videos of him playing hockey with his bodyguards. He's pretty good, and he's a very talented and gifted martial artist. But we know from the martial arts literature in judo and aikido and these kind of – and and jujitsu with its groundwork and judo has a lot of groundwork you get a lot of back and knee injuries Uh and neck injuries so it wouldn't surprise me that that putin's had too many break falls in his life uh Uh, the 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 other thing i think is the isolation is interesting i do think he's more isolated but i'm not sure that's because of COVID. i think he's just politically more isolated over the last decade he has a narrower inner circle compared to his first two terms when he had a much more diverse there was much more diversity of opinion in his national security council and he had very very bright talented people uh, working for him that i think helped him and helped russia and i think now he's he's probably leaning in more on a very narrower circle of people like you know fsb director alexander botnikov uh, defense minister Sergei Shoigu uh and and uh the chairman of the national security council former fsb chief nikolai patrushev you could you you might add lavrov to that group foreign minister lavrov i'm not so sure i think he goes along with it but i'm not sure he's really part of that inner circle in the same way or uh svr director sergei navishkin but President Putin's humiliation in public on worldwide TV the first week of the war, that famous meeting where he humiliated Norishkin would, would argue that Norishkin is not completely uh, trusted in, in that inner circle. Putin has really leaned much more in the FSB. The other risk he's taken is, is uh, like many autocrats, as they get older, their their thinking gets more rigid. It's what psychologists who study this call... Cognitive rigidity, where they see things more as black and white, uh-huh. less nuance, less gray. I think there's an element of that, and, and then the isolation from uh, with the pandemic, and the, we've seen the videos of the famous long table and things like that. I think that's probably more for dramatic effect and kind of a a power play than than anything medical or psychological per se. But I, I do think he's more isolated. I don't think when you look at the theories of the late Alexander Dugin who died in a in a bomb blast or uh, well his daughter alien, his daughter did uh his daughter that's okay that's right and when you look at when you look at but the attempt was on him that's yes, yeah. when you look at the theories that Putin has cited uh to justify the invasion I think Putin has had these thoughts for a long time he told president Bush I think way back in 2007 uh, that that Ukraine's not a real state, not a real nation, that mm-hmm. it's really part of Russia, and he's just using these uh, intellectual theories as kind of ballast to support mm-hmm. his ideology in this mm-hmm. case.
2: And as somebody who grew up post World War II, at, at, at sort of the the burgeoning and the height of the Soviet Union, like there, the, there's a reason he sees this Russian the, this soviet or the russian empire right i mean it's it's not outside of his realm of
0: right or wrong it's not
2: outside out outside of his realm of what the past was
0: yes and the past is is very important to him for him it was a heroic past and i think the breakup of the soviet union which he's called one of the great political tragedies of the 20th century was traumatic for him he Mm -hmm. was stationed in dresden Around that time, uh, and and when the when the DDR ceased to exist, kind of as a country, and uh, and demonstrators were in the streets, potentially threatening to overrun the Soviet consulate where Putin worked a small consulate in Dresden, he he cabled Moscow uh, back for instructions, and there was no response. So uh, he his famous line was, "Moscow was silent." So I think he one of the things that that President Putin has always feared is the loss of a strong Russian state. Mm-hmm. And and Fiona Hill, who who was the national security director for the Russia desk under President Trump, has written about this marvelous, marvelously in her book, uh, "Putin: Operative in the Kremlin," where Putin really is a statist who wants to rebuild uh, a strong centralized Russian state to some extent he i think he had done that successfully his first two terms but i think i think that that version of putinism is running out of steam mm-hmm. uh and he's unf- he's tragically for for russia for a whole generation accelerated that with this horrible tragic and, and wrong invasion of of a sovereign state of the ukraine mm-hmm. Uh he misjudged the ukrainians will to resist he misjudged nato he misjudged President Biden's ability to rally NATO and the EU around uh, uniting against Putin. And most of all, like everyone else, including us, he misjudged the courage and heroism of President Zelensky of the Ukraine.
1: Let's shift gears to talk about the Chinese Premier Xi. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about his inner, interior world.
0: Uh, Xi is a fascinating leader who, who, again, like many of these leaders um if if depending on which press you read it has been underestimated uh, but there was a cover of the economist and i still agree with that to some extent that he's probably the most powerful leader in the world today that that cover was in 2017 uh she was a child of privilege whose father was one of mao zedong's closest advisors uh during after during and after the long march and the founding of the people's republic in 1949 and was one of the youngest vice ministers in the early to mid 50s so she grew up in Zhongnanhai as a child of privilege kind of a communist elite under mao but then in the uh, early to mid 60s his his father was purged and then shortly a couple years later she a teenager was got caught up in the Cultural Revolution, was himself purged, threatened with execution uh, as a 14-year-old, Red Guards arrested and said, we can kill you 100 times. And he said, well, uh, you really don't need to do 100 when one will do. And they laughed and let him go, but sent him away to a faraway province where he lived among peasants and dug latrines for seven or eight years, a time that really changed him. And this is a time, think about it, a teenager who's away from his parents, doesn't know if he'll ever see them again in the throes of a cultural revolution that killed 10 million people, according to best historical estimates, uh, who's away from his family, away from Beijing, away from everything he's known. And he showed the resilience and fortitude to overcome that, what psychologists and psychiatrists call post-traumatic growth, and to come back and win win the trust of the villagers where he could get nominated to go to university back in Beijing, which he did, and then he began his political career. Um, so I think he's 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 in a way of, uh, it's a remarkable journey. And he's he gave an interview in 2000 when he wasn't well known to an obscure Chinese uh, newspaper. And he talked about how those experiences in the countryside strengthened his spirit. He used terminology like, you know, a knife is sharpened on a stone and and things like that that make you stronger, solidify you in, in your character and your psyche. You learn a lot from being among ordinary people. So I think even before he was famous and and, and more powerful, he was actually a late bloomer in many ways. He was only in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, barely got elected to the Central Committee as an alternate initially. Uh, his wife, who was a very famous opera singer and a major general in the music corps of the military was way more famous than he was at that time, penning one. So she she's had a remarkable ascendancy in, in what uh, former Australian prime, uh, prime minister, Kevin Rudd, who's a sinologist, who's met, I think, every Chinese leader since Mao and, and speaks Chinese and has now uh, been nominated to be the Australian ambassador in the U.S., Uh, Kevin Rudd is called she kind of uh, a remarkable character, a Nelson Mandela-like character in terms of his inner strength. And I I agree with that.
1: And how does that experience shape how his um, relationship with, you know, the the exterior world, with how he regards, you know, both regional areas around East Asia, but also, I mean, specifically the United States and how he negotiates with us and, and views us?
0: I think I think I think she is is even though he's he's traveled to the states as as uh, vice president and uh, and as president uh, since what 2008. I've talked to other people who've met she American diplomats and businessmen who've met him, and they tend to agree with the the portrait of him that he's really a rather remarkable figure. I think we have to be careful of biases like that famous cable from the U.S. Embassy in 2009, which said he had average intelligence. I was kind of shocked when I read that because to someone like me or to a psychologist, average intelligence suggests you have an IQ of 100 and you made it through high school. Uh Um, And she is fairly successfully running a country of 1.4 billion people. A person with average intelligence couldn't do that. Uh, they, they, they don't have the mental aptitude to run a country like that, let alone a smaller country or even an organization or a business. So I think we, we have to be careful with our built in, uh, you, any, any analyst of foreign leaders, you have to try your best to shed your biases and, and stick to more objective data. I think the, the interesting thing about she's, he knows more about America than we probably realize. Mm-hmm. He he's visited America, the famous visit to Iowa, uh in nineteen eighty five, where he met with then uh Governor Branstad, who later became U.S. ambassador to Beijing, to China, uh Terry Branstad. And and his daughter went to Harvard. And and a lot of the people around she have spent time in America, including uh several of the members of his first ten years Standing Politburo Committee and and even the current one, people have studied, several of them have studied in the United States and know and understand the United States. So I think uh the Chinese are I think well informed in that regard. I think they have their own bias where they have to be careful though. Uh I think they're Xi and, and his leadership, uh if if you will, the Standing Politburo Committee are so caught up in their success their real success of China's rising, that, that whole mantra, the East is rising and the West is in decline, uh-huh. they need to be careful. Uh, uh, American exceptionalism is still a, a, a force that is not spent. And I'm old enough that I've seen America go through the doldrums and bounce back. I remember, I remember Vietnam years. I remember the early 70s. I remember the late 70s. And America has a resilience and a quality that Our adversaries would be they'd be well well versed to read to tocqueville and and to try and understand our country more broadly Mm. and and because i think they get that wrong including she
1: one more i wanted to drop on you uh of course maybe the maybe the most interesting in in an eccentric way kim jong-un of north korea
0: kim jong-un is a fascinating leader We knew very little about him until uh, until he sort of had a diplomatic coming out, starting right around the time of after his New Year's speech in 2018 and the uh, Winter Olympics of 2018, which were held in South Korea, where he sent a delegation, a team to the Olympics and also a delegation, including his sister uh, Mm -hmm. and then president of North Korea, Kim Yo-jong, who was 90 His sister was the de facto leader of the delegation, Kim Yo-jong, and sent them to meet with South Korean leaders and thus began a remarkable series of summits, four summits that year between him and uh, uh, then South Korean President Moon Jae-in and his first meeting with President Trump in Singapore in June of 2018 and, and subsequent meetings in 2019 with President Trump and President Putin. And he also had three summits in twenty eighteen with uh China's President Xi Jinping. So he really is a remarkable young leader who showed the ability diplomatically and politically to go toe-to-toe as an equal with the most powerful leaders in the world. And a, a Russian a former Russian ambassador to South Korea, Ambassador Gleb Ivansyenev, uh pointed that out. And I think he's right. So Kim Kim is a very uh, remarkable and kind of interesting person in that regard. Um, like the other leaders, he's he's utterly ruthless. And I do think he has an agenda that he's not going to give up nuclear weapons. And I've said this all along. If anything, he's expanded his nuclear program and his missile programs and continues mm-hmm. to test longer and longer range uh, ICBMs. And there's there's real risk that that he could do a seventh nuclear test. But North Korea has been a de facto nuclear power since 2006. And I think what Kim wants is acceptance on the world stage, that their nuclear power in the same sense that India was after 1974 or Pakistan after 1998. And, and that's, a, that's a tough challenge because of the risks of nonproliferation. The nonproliferation regime, it threatens the whole underpinning of the nonproliferation regime and and peace and security in in northeast asia. So I think that's a that's a real hard challenge. I I've always uh I thought President Trump uh did the right thing to try to break the ice and and negotiate with uh Chairman Kim. I don't think there are any other good options. There never have been. Uh you, diplomacy's really the only option and and I know the Biden administration has tried to reach out but to no avail at this point. Uh, I think President Trump was successful in 2017 with the, the strictest US, U.N. sanctions in getting both China and Russia to go along with those sanctions. That would not happen today, of course. So I think that makes it more difficult. We're kind of a bit more on our own in that regard. But um, hopefully in the next couple of years, the dynamics on the ground will change and there'll be a return to diplomacy because that's the only hope.
1: You see Kim Jong-un as, you know, he, he, you think deep down he has a desire to join, you know, let's say the quote unquote global community, community of nations and be integrated, not not as, you know, what we call them today as a rogue state.
0: I, I think there was some hope of that in 2018. There was certainly hope that North Korea could follow a development model, you know, a one party system similar to, let's say, Vietnam. Uh, and, and, and that was highlighted during his visits, both to Singapore and Vietnam, where North Korea could be, could North Korea be the next Asian tiger if it opened up? Yes, I think so. The, once you unleash the kind of the hard work and the entrepreneurial spirit, the patriotism of the North Korean people, they're, they're Korean. So mm-hmm. they're going to be like South Korea. The economy is going to take off. You're going to build infrastructure and rail and, health clinics and, and you know, uh, and build businesses and, and create legitimate businesses. But him has been, at this point, sadly, has tightened up the economy after earlier years of of reforms, of, of internal reforms, economic reforms loosening up, if you will, of entrepreneurialism during the first couple of years of his rule after 2012. And now it's a little tighter, but there's hope that once once they get out of this kind of pandemic, they were really under a severe lockdown, the most severe in the world, that that little by little they will experiment again with opening up. They've done it before, so I'm sure he'll do it again. He's what I've written and and about and called an aspirational leader, where I think he he has several desires. One is to stay in power and to keep his family the Mount Peak 2 bloodline in power and the other is to uh, uh, build up North Korea's economy and have North Korea accepted as a nuclear weapon state
2: Is is there a tendency for us as Americans to look at a state like North Korea similar to a state like Russia or or Gaddafi or, or you know Tito or whatever when really he's a generational like he inherited what he got and what he got like he might want to be something different than what what it has been as opposed to a first generation leader who like grab control and and has the reins like a
1: revolutionary
0: that that's an interesting question because if you look at tito who who i studied very well and and grew up learning about tito um in the former yugoslavia tito's kids and grandchildren are poor There was no handover. There was no translation, or right. He died, and it ended. Yeah, yeah, of power. So Kim, uh, Kim is different because here you have a third generation Mm -hmm. ruler that has to has to seek his. He has to figure out his legitimacy, uh, and it's different from that of his of his father and his grandfather. His his grandfather, the founder of modern North Korea, had the legitimacy of fighting the Japanese uh, during uh, World War II and fighting the the Americans during the Korean War. Um, Kim Jong Un doesn't have that same kind of legitimacy. The best legitimacy for him is going to be economic in the long run, because it's a new generation of, of, of the children of these young elites. And in terms of governance and leadership outcomes, he has to balance and keep not only the military happy, and and the whole nuclear weapons complex, if you will, happy, but he has to keep the 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 elites happy. Uh, he he has more power at his control and ruthlessness, but none of these autocratic leaders have complete absolute power. They have to appeal to constituencies and factions within the elites to maintain their power. I read somewhere that there's some
1: uh I guess informed speculation that he may have gone to boarding school in Switzerland as a
0: kid. Oh, he did. He that's did? that's not speculation. He he spent several years in in boarding schools in Bern, Switzerland, uh where he was kind of thought to be an average student, you know, typical kind of middle school kid who liked who liked basketball and the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan and rap music and video games. Kind of didn't make a huge impression one way or another, and and then that's interesting psychologically because he he was like a boarding school kid away from his family for several years where he didn't he didn't see his parents, and then he came back and kind of over time became uh, groomed to be his father's successor. One of the one of the false narratives, kind of an intelligence failure, in the mid to late 2000s was that when when Kim Jong-un took power after his father's death from a sudden cardiac death in, in December 2011, was that he had not been groomed for a leadership role the way Kim Jong-il was for over 25 years in different party positions uh, in the Korean Workers' Party. But fact of the matter is uh, it, it became clear in hindsight that he had been groomed for several years Uh, for these type of leadership roles and that he took to them uh, far more easily and far more ruthlessly than anyone would have predicted. So outside of what,
2: uh, and again, not to get political because, but outside of what, you know, taking Trump as a person, Trump as a president, Trump's policies anywhere else, do you feel that his, his approach, his trip to North Korea, uh, was a positive step, and how should our government government proceed from there if it was or wasn't?
0: It's it's hard to redo it. I think it was positive. If if you if you listen to then um, uh, he was I believe the special envoy at the time, later deputy secretary of state Steve Beegans, uh, very very powerful speech at Stanford in January of. 2019 right a month before the Hanoi summit that speech was clearly blessed by the white house that he could give it publicly and it outlined what a what a relationship with american north korea might look like mm-hmm. and they looked at things like uh, an end to a formal end to the war beyond the 1953 armistice uh, the exchange of prisoners and and or their remains if you will um, the opening of liaison offices uh in both countries and and the first kind of tentative steps similar to the six party talks in the mid 2000s of of uh beginning processes of denuclearization we got real close and then uh in hanoi in the negotiations it fell apart and uh i think I think both sides lost the momentum and President Trump as he famously said in in his book on negotiation the art of the deal sometimes you got to walk away mm-hmm. and President Trump believed it and he did but so did Kim mm-hmm. Kim didn't walk he took a very long train ride all the way from Hanoi back to Pyongyang uh and and then then I think President Trump regained the momentum with his dramatic symbolic visit to the DMZ in june of 2019 but then the momentum was was lost and then you know fast forward a few more months and then you're in domestic politics take over a presidential election season right and it's hard to capture the momentum right that that same thing happened that sense of running out of time happened during the end of president clinton's term when secretary of state um Madeleine well, uh, Albright yeah. visited Pyongyang mm-hmm. and and they just ran out of time and and President Clinton wasn't going to be able to uh cuz he was finishing his term and then the politics changed with President George W Bush.
2: What does it mean for a politician regardless of their level like Madeleine Albright and Trump or whatever what does it mean for them to actually cross the DMZ for what does it mean to the leader of North Korea when when they do that?
0: I think it's very important symbolically uh the the if you look at the first meeting with uh then president uh moon jae-in and chairman kim in uh i believe april of 2018 where they held hands and took those steps back and forth across the, the dmz the the symbolism was very powerful so i think that's i think that's very very important and one of the things that it shows is is a respect for the leader and for their country that that you're acknowledging them as a, as the legitimate leader of a real country uh, we may not agree with their politics we certainly don't uh, there are many horrific things that they've done in terms of human rights abuses but there are many areas where where we can uh cooperate and and i'm i'm a strong believer in diplomacy i think that we we have to figure out how to negotiate with difficult people uh, and and cooperate and engage, if you will, in areas where we're able to. I'm not saying it's easy. My diplomatic colleagues will tell you it's very difficult, but we have very talented diplomats and people who are kind of hardwired to do this. They learn the languages, they learn the cultures, they become very specialized, and, and it's important to keep trying both with our adversaries such as North Korea, with Iran, with China, with Russia. Uh, Because when, for example, with the Ukraine war, when the war ends, uh, we can't ignore Russia. It's the largest geographic landmass in the world. It's a huge producer of oil and natural gas. We can't really shut them out of the world economy uh, forever. We may have sanctions now, but uh, we, we have to figure out a way to to work with russia when i was in russia in 2011 then vice president biden visited the embassy and gave a speech and he said a strong prosperous russia is in the u.s national interest i still agree with that i i think the the key word there is prosperous Mm -hmm. Uh, unfortunately it's not prosperous when you have a brain drain because of president putin's policies uh which in which close to a million Highly educated people aged between 20 and about 50 leave the country permanently. Uh the the if you think of the competition, the multipolar world that even the ODI report cited uh last year, and Director Burns and Director uh Haynes have cited, and President Xi uses that language as well. The 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 multipolar world will also be a war for talent. The Cold uh-huh. War will be a war for talent. Uh-huh. So if you lose a million people that are talented, you've lost out big time.
1: I, I want to get to some viewer questions. I think we have some. Uh, yeah, we do. Um, um, but first, could you tell us about, you know, what you've done in, you know, quote unquote retirement Um, you wrote a book?
0: Yes, I'm not retired. I see patients uh, full time, 40 hours a week. Okay, so you're still well, quite I'm busy. Than ever. And I've written a book, <laughs> which I'll hold up. It's called The Negotiator's Cross and and it's a novel uh a mystery novel kind of a mystery espionage thriller that's been very well reviewed by two of your previous guests on the show uh Jim Lawler and J R Seeger and and uh also Jim Haas and it's a tale of a of an american priest who grows up in texas and is recruited into the military after high school he grew up on a farm and a ranch so he has a lot of different skills and he's recruited into an elite military intelligence unit, uh, the, the kind of unit that doesn't have a name and stationed all over. And he speaks fluent Spanish, so he's stationed all over Latin America, Mexico, Central America, um, uh, doing intelligence and and trying to catch bad guys, cartel leaders and recruit other people. And he has some traumatic experience there, which lead him to leave the unit after a few years and he finds his way to the to his calling the priesthood and then he's uh then sent to Mexico City, where he's the priest to a small group of of expats and One day one of his expats uh an american a young mexican american businessman uh goes missing they think he's been kidnapped, and this character, Father Ishmael, gets drawn into a world of kidnapped negotiations with cartels. With the US government, with Mexican government intelligence and law enforcement agencies, and it becomes very harrowing. And and his skills get noted. And because of that, he's then transferred by the apostolic nuncio to Moscow, where an American priest has been seized and they and accused of espionage. And they want to uh get the priest back, but they have to use the Holy Zay, the nuncio, the ambas- the, the embassy of the Holy Zay as the go between so they use him and there he interacts with people from the US government CIA the State Department the FSB the GRU and there's there's some other subplots that involve a missing uh Russian Spetsnaz veteran and GRU officer who was a material witness at the massacre of Srebrenica of 7000 Bosnian Muslims uh, men women and children in july 1995 so the novel's set in the 90s and it ends around the millennium it's and not... and it's the tale that tests this priest not only different skills diplomatic negotiation skills but in the end is faith i think uh, readers will enjoy it greatly i'm working on a sequel that involves a high level missing north korean uh defector
1: uh, it's not so far out there, Ken. I, I heard a story very recently about a uh, an American nun that was uh, taken by terrorists in an African nation, and we recently repatriated. And you know, none of that really hit the headlines at all, but it, it happened. So, I mean, ex- the the plot of your novel is not so far out there from reality.
0: Uh, people have asked me how I got into it. One of my one of my uh, roles uh, overseas was. Providing medical support to hostages, to diplomats or family members who'd been taking hostage. And so I, I became familiar with that world of hostage negotiation, not as a negotiator. Doctors aren't negotiators, they're medical support, but I had to understand that world. And 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 you know, I've I've attended and presented at SEER psychology conferences organized by the Department of Defense. And so I, I learned about that world and and had a lot of fascination with with those kind of negotiations. A lot of people have asked me why, why is the protagonist a priest? That sort of came to me by serendipity one day while I was uh sitting on my porch having a drink and smoking a cigar. Because most hostage negotiators in fiction are gonna be like law enforcement FBI agents, or if it's overseas, a diplomat, a lawyer or a CIA officer, an intelligence officer. And I thought, I'll make mine different. No one's ever made a priest do this. But I later found out, after I had written the first couple drafts of the book, there's a book by uh, Victor Gaetan called God's Diplomats, uh, where uh, there have been priests in this type of role as negotiators, for example, in, in Nigeria and in Central America. And there's a famous movie about a priest who gets drawn into the world of terrorism and counterterrorism with the IRA called A Prayer for the Dying, starring Liam Neeson. Yeah, I've and seen that. And the priest is played by Bob Hostens. I had seen this movie uh, when it came out, gosh, 25 years ago. Yeah. And I, I must have repressed it in my consciousness, but I remembered it later after I had written the novel. And it involved a priest who struggles with his faith and those kind of choices as the protagonist in my novel.
2: I, I just also want to say, uh, unfortunately, uh, Jack and I haven't read this, but we will. And the book is, if you have Kindle Prime or Amazon Prime, with the Kindle Prime, like you can read this book for free, and you still get paid. So, check it out.
0: For sure. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah of I hope readers will like it, and if you like it, please post a review on on Amazon. It has it's great. also been reviewed in the Cipher Brief uh, recently by uh, Joe Augustine, a retired senior uh, cia officer
2: fantastic uh so here are the questions uh danny thank you very much for the donation i I, i'm pretty sure we got to your uh question on the havana syndrome um scott thank you very much uh thoughts of putin cover-up being born in georgia what
0: Uh don't there's no evidence to support that. Uh every every biography I've read of Putin and they're very good and the the more re- recent ones have even more detail uh is you know, Putin is a Len- a child of Leningrad. Okay.
2: Thank you. Uh Brady, thank you very much. How many psychopaths do you think hold positions
0: of power? That's a great question. Uh I I recently I recently heard a lecture by a friend of mine and colleague who had been actually an opposing expert, and he's written a lot about psychopathy, and, and, and he's a psychiatrist named Dr. Bill Reed, and and I actually we talked about this. We had kind of an after after he gave a grand rounds lecture for a, a group of psychiatrists. This question came up, and the answer is probably not too many. Here's why. Because if you're a full-blown psychopath, according to Dr. Robert Hare's psychopathy checklist, if you get a score of 30 or higher out of a 40-point scale, which is, for example, what in capital murder cases where I've testified, I've testified several of those defendants met the full criteria. One one guy that I testified about was 39 out of 40, for example. You they they don't if they're that psychopathic they won't have the skill set and staying power and resiliency to be successful and to attract people around them they leave they damage too many relationships mm-hmm. and they often lack the staying power in politics the patience like Xi Jinping's patience mm-hmm. to achieve a lifelong dream over decades of achieving power and achieving the things he wants to achieve But certain psychopathic character traits may be be more, I guess, in certain professions. And I've said this publicly. I was cross-examined about this once on, on a capital murder case. You will find people in certain professions, the legal profession, politics, where they have these kind of traits, business, that can appear to be adaptive. I would argue they're still destructive in the long run, uh-huh. but superficially can appear to be adaptive, and you may get people that, that appear to be successful. But but uh, eventually, even, even those people with those kind of traits, they can't build real lasting relationships, which you need in politics and in business and in government to get things done. So in the end, they falter as well, I think.
2: Ken, out, out of curiosity, is there... Is there a medical or uh, psychological difference between a sociopath and a psychopath?
0: yeah psychopaths are are a subset really of any social personality or sociopath and and they're less common you see you see them in the prison population you'll see a certain percentage of 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 patients who commit violent crimes or psychopaths. The key difference in the medical and psychiatric and psychological literature is, most people that are called sociopaths or any social personalities, they kind of burn out by the time they get to be forty or forty-five. They get tired of it. That explains they get tired it. Of being in jail, they get tired <laughs> of getting in trouble, Start and a they podcast. they do mellow out. I've seen, I've evaluated, I saw a patient once who I evaluated for a transplant, who was a retired. He was a hitman for the mob. Mm-hmm. in in Dallas.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I asked him, what do you do? He goes, I was a hitman. I'm like, what? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, I, I had to kill people. I did it for a living. I'm like, Oh my gosh. But I said, D- do you do that now? He goes, no, no, I retired. I'm old. I'm sick. I got failing liver. I got failing this. I got failing that. He wanted a transplant. He said, I just like playing with my grandkids. So he hadn't been in trouble with the law for, for many, many years. But psychopaths don't burn out. The, okay. the character traits stay with them forever. So if you if you see people that are like that, they they can't really form relationships. They lack the emotional ability and empathy to form relationships. And I, I tend to tell people if you see them, you want to run the other way.
2: So probably any person who's ever been a SODIC or taken the, uh, the MM, special operations target addiction, but taken the MMPI, has been told that they have sociopathic tendencies, but they're not a sociopath or something like that. What, what does that mean?
0: That, I think, this is an interesting question. Uh, in, in his podcast with you guys, and in his other podcast, in his talk called Soul Catcher, uh, uh, Jim Lawler, who's, one of the, who's a CIA trailblazer and one of the uh, greatest case officers of our generation, who, who was responsible for building a team that took down the AQCon nuclear mm. proliferation network, has said you need a little bit of those kind of manipulative traits in order to, to, to you know, skate around the law. What, but what he really means is you're hiring people who within the organization and with each other and with their families and friends, have to have high levels of integrity, truthfulness, and honesty, but they have to have the ability to persuade a foreign asset or an agent to put their life at risk and to break the law of the country in which they live. So that's kind of threading a line there, that it, it takes a certain type of psychological character trait to be able to do that. Not all people uh, uh, can do that. But in in certain professions, uh, you, you need people who can, you know, kind of shade the truth. We all shade the truth every day in our everyday conversations. Sure. People, little kids learn to do it. Teenagers do it. Anyone who's raised a teenage kid understands lying. Uh, but you have to. There's certain professions where that may be adaptive behavior, like being a defense attorney or being a politician, you you have to be able to hide some of your emotions and manipulate and, and highlight others. Yeah. Uh, And I think the case, the the good case officers are, are going to be people who can, but in, even in the end, uh, someone like Jim Lawler will say, you can't rely solely on manipulation. In the end, you rely on building the relationship, right? Someone like Jim Lawler has exceptional, Patience and the ability to build a relationship with an asset that who they dedicate themselves to and whose life they're dedicated to protect. You know they they live by the protect all sources and methods motto, just like an FBI agent will say, "I protect my sources, my informants." They they have to have the, those relationship building abilities, and frankly, emotional intelligence plays into that.
2: Um, and does that also play into Like on the more military, like direct direct action side, like the ability the ability to engage in combat or the the ability to take a life and not be so adversely uh, uh, direct or you know adversely affected by it.
0: Yeah, I I I can't I'm. I'm not familiar with that cuz I didn't work in the military. The the most famous book about this is David Grossman's book on killing. Right. Where he really gets into that. Right. Um and and I think the the it's something that the special forces, for example, uh select they have to select for the ability and that's why these people undergo in their selection process different types of psychological tests and specialized courses. To select someone who when the moment comes can can if they're taking down an airliner with terrorists in it they have to be able to shoot the terrorists like a swat team person yeah has to be able to do that uh and and do it because they're taking a life to save other lives right. so that's that's how they work around it morally without being uh traumatized by it Interesting. uh so i think it, it's it's a certain the special operators have that unique uh skill set of of you know having the mentality somebody who's been in the rangers like you guys or delta force or seals and I've known many such people you know will uh you know feel that they're they're really preserving life in the end they're saving lives uh, With... of 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 citizens by taking out let's say terrorists
2: with your work on this vast spectrum of both like people working for their country intelligence officers and also like talking to you know these criminals um who you know you know people who have been in jail for whatever do, do you feel that they all have morals in their own world in the sense of this is right and this is wrong and I might do this, but I would never do this? Or, or is there a percentage of population that just whatever goes, goes?
0: Well, the psychopaths, true psychopaths are completely amoral. They're they They only act in their own self-interest, but even, even if I've, I've had patients who were gang members, for example, they have, their own, they have their own codes of behavior, they have rules, and they, uh, and I, I learned about them from treating them. They would educate me about that. And I had one uh, gangbanger, and I had to put him in solitary because he was threatening a young inmate who didn't know the rules, who was, quote-unquote, dissing him and disrespecting him. And I said, is that something you can blow off? He goes, Doc, you don't understand. In my world I can't blow that off. Uh-huh. Uh, that kind of thing, it makes he's not only attacking me, he's attacking my gang. Uh-huh. And and you know, and that cannot stand. So he said, I have no choice then but to hurt him or worse. So he agreed. He said, put me in solitary, because I don't I don't want to go back to prison. I wanna get out and try to have a normal life. But that code uh was so instilled in him because he'd been a gang member for Fifteen or twenty years since he was what ten or eleven years old, and and I've had gang members tell me uh, to my face when I evaluated them for for uh, as an expert witness would say, you know, if, if right now you're helping me, you're the expert, but if I had to kill you, I'd do it in a heartbeat. <laughs>
2: That's fascinating. Um, and Danny, thank you very much. Um, how difficult is was it to do a profile on Iran's supreme leader, according to the general public he's very inaccessible he's a very inaccessible mysterious figure
0: that that's a very good question the 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 leaders where we have less data are by by definition harder Kim jong un was certainly like that the first several years of his rule the only the only American who had met him was Dennis Rodman now. Did the US government talk to Dennis Rodman and get his impressions? I'm sure they did. And and uh, you know, I've I, I myself have talked to people who were part of that entourage. Uh so you can form certain impressions. Uh with with the Supreme Leader, it it's it's very difficult because he's elderly, he's ailing, he's sick, uh, he recently had surgery. Uh he's thought to have late-stage prostate cancer. So it's very, very difficult to get a current, in those kind of cases, you don't have the raw data. And again, most of the data is gonna be through open sources, people who've met with them, secondary sources, but in this case, you don't have that. So you'd probably inside the U.S. government have to rely more on classified methods, uh, Any any data you could get from recruiting a source close to the leader, or through signals intelligence.
1: Doc Ken, th- thank you so much. This yeah, incredible. Really, it is. It's a totally different view from uh, you know, inside this world than what we normally get from even people who are spies or certainly special operators or whoever it is. Um, it's a really unique but insights. I'll,
0: I want to thank you all for hosting me and thank I I tip my hat and thank all the members who I've worked with and. A gratitude to the people in the military the intelligence community and the diplomatic community who serve tirelessly often without kudos often for many years in remote austere and dangerous faraway places to help keep our country safe so i'm very grateful to them and was really privileged and honored to be a physician diplomat for 14 years uh mostly overseas, 14 of the best years of my life.
1: And folks out there, uh, next Friday, we're going to be talking to Larry Chambers. He was a LURP in Vietnam, long-range reconnaissance patrol guy, predecessor to the Ranger companies later on in the war. Uh, he's uh, wrote the book Recondo. I'm halfway through it right now. You guys are going to love it. Uh, he also worked with another former guest, Ken Miller. They were out on patrol in Vietnam together. So uh, really excited to have Larry on the show. Uh, Ken, again, thank you so much for doing this. Please stay in touch and, check and everybody out check
2: out uh, Negotiator's Cross um, wherever you buy your books. But if you have Kindle, uh, if you have the Amazon Prime, you're, you can get it for free on Kindle Prime. Read it. He still, he still. The link's in the description, The link's going to be in the description. It's also in the chat right now. Negotiator's Cross. All right, guys. Thank we you will... very much.
1: See you guys next Friday.